0: before our people can be stated. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not.
1: Of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. The future and the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. out of the ashes this is the right take
0: Hello everybody and how is it going? welcome one and all this is episode number 70 here of the right take I am Eric Lindrum here with my co-host Jacob Grandstaff. And we have got uh, quite some interesting topics here on the agenda today for episode 70. We're going to be talking, of course, about that all-time you know, quintessential issue to the America First agenda, which is immigration. We're going to be talking, of course, about the bipartisan role that both parties play in screwing over the American worker and the American economy in the name of cheap labor. And again, that does go for the Republicans, the ones supported by the Chamber of Commerce who only care about the GDP and nothing else. That is going to be the primary topic we're going to be getting to in a little bit here. But before we do that, uh, I wanted to start off with a little something-something. And Jacob and I have already discussed this previously. Here on the right take we every now and then tell you know little personal anecdotes from time to time stuff that's gone on in our lives you know things we things we witnessed around DC or things we overhear in, in the back of an Uber or something like that mostly for the purpose of tying it to a particular uh, political topic or a trend or something as to as some kind of anecdotal evidence anecdotal but evidence nonetheless of something going on or when we want to more further prove a point with regards to a particular topic that we are discussing. We, of course, every now and then we'll do something fun, like talk about our 4th of July vacations and whatnot, but we rarely get personal here, of course, on this podcast for obvious reasons, to avoid self-doxing or what have you, naturally, but among other things. But I felt I had to at least start this episode with a little acknowledgement of just something I had to deal with recently uh, and i'm not gonna say like oh this played a part in some of the hiatuses here and there but this definitely has to some degree affected my ability to think about politics in the way i used to or at the very least you could say it's changed my perspective just a little bit um and there is a broader point i'm going to make with this that uh over the weekend i went back to my home state of california over the weekend and a handful of additional days before and after. To give myself a little bit of a buffer zone with traveling and whatnot. To go see my family back in the small town where I was born and raised. Uh, <clears throat> and it was for the purpose of uh, attending my grandfather's funeral. That is uh, my dad's dad, uh, Charles Lendrum. Who passed away the day before Memorial Day of this year. He was 96 years old. He um, was actually halfway on his, uh, to his 97th birthday, as a matter of fact um the head of our family very much a a lighthouse for our family if you will through the the heaviest of storms and the thickest of fog and i reflected on on many things of course while i was back with family you know going through some, you know his old house and and going through all the pictures of him and the memories that were there and something that occurred to me of course is that he absolutely lived a very very american life to say the least he was again as i said with his age he was he was a member of the greatest generation he saw a lot throughout his life he served in the navy in world war ii technically the coast guard at the time the uh, u.s navy coast guard reserves that's back when they were one and the same kind of like how the air force used to be part of the army the army air force Uh, and in fact something i did bring back that i'm wearing right now are his old dog tags um you know he served in the navy shortly after pearl harbor he, of course, started a family and he ran several businesses, several successful businesses. You know, the American dream right there, right? You know, businesses that became fixtures of our hometown. And he saw a lot over his life. And he would always tell me stories of some of the historical events that he witnessed and remembered, you know, most particularly like the the 1968 election and all of the insanity there, the uh, assassination of Bobby Kennedy. He always tells me, he, he always told me, he always insisted that if Bobby hadn't been shot, he would have been president that year. And I always like to say, well, that imagine that timeline. That would have sucked for Richard Nixon, huh? Losing the presidency twice to two different Kennedys. Um, he told me about the JFK assassination. He told me about uh, plenty of other things that he remembered throughout his life. And... It's true what's been said, and I kind of, I, I, I'll i call back a little bit to a post I made on Gab quite a while ago. I don't post there too often, so it shouldn't be too hard to find if you scroll down my timeline. I did a little tribute post when uh, Senator Bob Dole died. You know, he was the nominee against Clinton in 1996. He was uh, a longtime senator and the last nominee of any major party who served in World War II. And I said in that post something to the effect of that his passing does represent a monumental moment in terms of the inevitable and fast approaching end as we know it of the last remnants of the greatest generation of which my grandfather was a member and i like to think of course it's all it's been said many many times before that the greatest generation they're called that for a reason they they stormed the beaches of normandy they fought the nazis they fought the japanese and they saved the world as it were they saved america they saved the west what have you And then they subsequently left behind a safer, more secure, more prosperous America and world for us to deal with. Of course, we then had to deal with the Cold War for half a century, but we ultimately managed to win that. And theirs was a generation that, like many before it, all they wanted to do was leave behind a better world for us. To leave us behind, to leave us in a better situation than they were when they were coming of age. And I think the greatest generation certainly succeeded in that aspect. And we can always have these debates about which generation is the one that messed everything up. Was it the boomers? Was it Gen X? Is it mo- going to be millennials? Are Gen Z going to be hopeless? You know. And of course, I do think it is true as cliches. As it may be. It's true that certainly modern generations, millennials and Gen Z cannot even begin to hold a candle to what the greatest generation accomplished in their youth. Think of how many young men stormed the beaches of Normandy when they were college-age men, if not younger. But as bad as things have gotten in America and the world, I don't believe in giving up completely. Because, of course, it's true that the world that the greatest generation built for us and left behind for us does not exist anymore. that It is very much gone, but I don't think that means we should give up Fighting for the same things that they believed in and that they passed down onto us. And because I believe, of course, that those who become black pill, those who just completely OD on black pills, they inevitably become nihilists. And as Friedrich Nietzsche and many others understood, nihilism is just the worst possible form of existence for a human being. When you believe nothing matters anymore and that nothing is worth fighting for, you might as well not exist. You you have no reason to go on, you have no reason to live. And so I reject nihilism. I reject black pillism, as it were. I still believe, even as hopeless as things may be, as much as it looks like they may have already won and successfully deconstructed everything we knew and loved, the past still existed. And the past still is able to give us these things that we carry on to this day, whether it was the greatest generation or the founding fathers. They were able to do it at some point. And so I think we should always try our best to believe that we can live up to their expectations and their standards. And that we, when the time comes and the moment calls for greatness, we can strive to be that greatness. That even if what they left behind for us is barely recognizable today, that doesn't mean we shouldn't stop fighting for what it once was. People say like, oh, should we still, you know... Fight for America, given that America is currently run by a globalist deep state that's going to push diversity quotas and anti-whiteness and transgenderism and all that on us. And I get that. I get that that's valid. But America wasn't always like that. You know, newsflash, right? We haven't always been this multicultural utopia that they're trying to push on us now. We were once that shining city on the hill, to quote President Reagan. We were once the hope of the free world. We were once absolutely the greatest nation in the world. And I think we still are. Certainly, you you compare us to our competition. We still are. But it's all still worth fighting for, for the sake of those who came before us. So that is why we do this podcast. That is why we do what we do here on The Right Take. We talk about the things that matter and the issues you need to be most made most aware of. But most importantly, we talk about the fights that need to be had so that we can hopefully begin to rebuild the world, the America that we knew as it once was. So I just wanted to say that and pay tribute and say, uh, you know, thank you for everything you did, Papa, as we all called him. And you will be sorely missed, as will everyone else in your great generation, in your greatest generation.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, Eric. You mentioned this last week was going on and you mentioned that you hadn't put it on social media because you don't put this kind of stuff on social media and this is one thing that I've often thought about if I have a loved one pass away all my grandparents passed away when I was um, when well, them passed away before I was born and then the others passed away when I was um, very young but I've often thought if I had uh, an immediate family member pass away I understand trying to keep that quiet but uh, yeah I, I definitely uh, appreciate you sharing the story of your grandfather and it's uh, it really was a special generation that World War two generation. There are World War II veterans left because most of them already passed away a decade or more ago. I know when I was little, it just shows kind of how old we're getting ourselves. When I was little, uh, you knew World War II veterans all the time. Like there were World mm-hmm. War II veterans who lived down the street from where my family lived. So it's, um, it's definitely something uh, – it's definitely a generation that we should cherish uh, with those that are, that are still with us. So moving on to issues that can actually help us try to bring America back to where it once was, um, monetary policy. You know, back in the back during the generation that grew up before World War II, the 1920s, 1930s, we had a gold standard. And one thing that people don't actually, because of course inflation is all over the news. That's all the Republican Party wants to talk about right now, and for understandable reasons. But one thing a lot of people don't realize is that our money actually gained value between 1815 and 1915. We just assume that as time goes on. The value of money naturally plummets, things automatically become more expensive. But if you look at the record in 1815, things actually cost more in dollars than what they did in 1915. And the reason was very simple. We had sound money. And as the economy improved, as productivity improved, then prices naturally fell. So it was the complete inverse of what we have today where prices continue to just spiral out of control to the point to where we're almost like Weimar Germany, like our money is next to, uh, it's it's not next to worthless, but it's moving in that direction. Really the only reason why the United States is able to spend at these luxurious rates and able to do so without taxing its citizens, like it should if it's going to spend this much, is because we're the world's reserve currency. What's funny is I came across this the other day. This is an, an Atlantic article by Derek Thompson. It's called the Everything is Weird Economy. And he's trying to figure out What the heck is going on with our economy? Some of the questions he asks actually are puzzling to someone who sees no problem with mass migration, who believes that America is a country of immigrants, who is really utopian in a sense, and that he believes that we can create a new Tower of Babel in the United States and invite every tribe and every language from around the world, and we just all hold hands and sing kumbaya, and unite around American capitalism. And one of the things that he's trying to point out is that nothing about the current economy makes any sense You know, when you compare it to past trends. He writes, the U.S. economy can't be this weird forever. That's what I keep telling myself anyway. Eventually, I think financial news will be boring again. Eventually, I pray the U.S. economy won't resemble some ever-morphing Rorschach blot. But after a year of shortages, a great resignation, talking about how people just were giving up on work, staying at home, not going to work, not finding new jobs, and rising inflation, I'm still waiting for the normalcy. Here are three questions that get to the heart of what makes this moment so strange. Answering them, or at least attempting to answer them, could help indicate where things go in the second half of the year. Number one, if gas prices are plummeting, why is inflation rising? Number two, if jobs are growing, why is the economy shrinking? And if prices are rising, why are wages falling? And number three, if consumers are miserable, why is leisure spending on fire? And I've noticed, you know, I've actually noticed this myself. Yes, gas prices, if you've driven much in the past month, you'd know that gas prices are actually going down. And for people who think that the president controls the gas prices, then of course their immediate knee-jerk reaction is gonna be, oh, well, it's election season, so of course Biden is gonna lower the gas prices. But I mean, in all fairness, the president, Can implement policies that will impact gas prices long term, but the president doesn't have a magic button in the White House that he can press. You know, okay, let's make the gas prices go higher. Let's make them go lower. I mean, he can certainly,
0: in Biden's case especially, you can certainly implement policies that do negatively impact gas prices and lead to an energy crisis, like everything he did to shut off the selling of all, you know, oil and gas leases on federal lands, canceling the Keystone Pipeline, basically shutting down the energy independence program Trump had in place, and then turning around and begging the Saudis and the Venezuelans for oil. That certainly plays a role. But yeah, like you said, it's not a magic button. It's very much, it's a cause and effect kind of thing.
1: But the thing that Derek Thompson is wondering is, okay, so why are these gas prices falling, but why is inflation overall rising? He says in the past two weeks, we've seen all sorts of evidence of disinflation. Retailers, including Target, Gap, um, Bed Bath & Beyond, and others say they're swimming in merchandise that they'll have to discount. Oil prices have plunged, and gasoline prices are now coming down fast. Part of that is because OPEC has actually started increasing their production of oil. So we are seeing the oil prices start to come down. Also, it's not as much of a jolt. This is one thing that people need to understand that you know, a lot of really, shall I say, um, less than intellectually sound Republicans will say, oh, well, when Trump was in office, gas prices were low, Biden gets in, they immediately shoot up. It's true that biden's policies exacerbated the problem but if trump had won re-election we would have still seen a spike in gas prices in 2021 it wouldn't have been as great but there still would have been a spike for the simple reason that people started getting out on the road in 2021 compared to 2020 when everyone was locked down so naturally as demand increased the price would increase until that leveled out now the, the russia stuff just exacerbated the problem even further and that's something that wouldn't have happened if trump was president either but uh, you know we had a natural spike because of the end of COVID that caused gas prices to rise. In a normal economy with a normal president, gas would be much lower than what it is today, but it would be coming down because we're starting to overcome that shock. Now, one of the reasons why it seems like we're starting to see disinflation is because you had all these stores that had ordered an excess of goods after, the, after, the, um, after COVID. And so now they've got extra goods on hand, and they're not having, they're not able to sell them fast enough because the shipping lanes have actually o- opened up. I don't know if you remember last year there was a ship, there was a um, a ship that had actually blocked the Suez Canal. Oh yeah, months. this was like in February or March of 2021. It's this, like the
0: Evergreen it, or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it just exacerbated the problem. That's just made everything, you know, all over the world worse. It's one of that's probably the busiest canal in the entire world. So this is one reason why you're starting to see a little bit of disinflation. But on number two, he says, if jobs are growing, why is the economy shrinking? And if prices are rising, why are wages falling? He writes, if the only economic statistic you followed was the monthly jobs report, you'd assume that the U.S. is booming. Two years ago in June, the unemployment rate was 11%, the highest since World War II. Today it's 3.6%, just 0.1 points away from being tied for the lowest unemployment rate since World War II. That's a remarkable turnaround. This is what Democrats are hammering over and over again. They're saying Biden has created more jobs than any president in American history, that we've seen a complete turnaround in jobs. But of course, what they're forgetting about is the fact that most of those jobs were lost because Democratic governors shut down their states. That's why you had an 11 unemployment rate. Now, this is a good question though. Okay, so it looks like the economy has completely recovered from COVID. So we should be back where we were in 2019, right? So you know, why you've got 11% unemployment in 2021, now you've got 3.6% unemployment. So ordinarily the economy should be booming, but yet economists, including the Federal Reserve, are pointing out that Atlanta's Fed specifically is pointing out that the US is heading towards a recession. In fact, we sh- technically should be in a recession right now. So Derek Thompson is asking, so the economy contracted last quarter and the Atlanta Fed now estimates that with the pullback in manufacturing, construction, and exports, GDP is still contracting by about one percentage point annualized. Two consecutive quarters of negative growth is typically but not always a sign of recession. For the past two quarters, we've had negative growth in the United States. The economy is clearly shrinking. Businesses are not expanding, but yet unemployment remains low. And this is one thing that you're not seeing Republicans take advantage of. There are some who are pointing this out, but you just don't see the GOP running with this narrative. And that is the reason why it looks like the economy is booming. If you just look at the jobs numbers is because American workers are being replaced. If you you just look at the unemployment rate and you don't look at the lack of job participation or the workforce participation, then yeah, it's going to look like the economy is booming. But the reason for that is because the Chamber of Commerce got all of the wage slaves that they ordered with Biden. Remember, the Chamber of Commerce backed Democrats like they've never backed Democrats before in the election of 2020. They started pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into Democratic politicians. Many of the major corporations backed Biden. They backed the Democrats, and the reason was simple. They've turned socially liberal. Trump, They saw Trump as erratic, someone who wasn't necessarily going to back their interests specifically on immigration. So they turn around. They support Democrats, which used to be the, parter, the party of workers. And essentially what they were doing is they were just placing an order for new wage slates because Americans, of course, demand too too high of wages. They want workers who are used to making a lot less, and the countries they come from are going to be satisfied with a lot less. And what happens when Biden gets in? Well, the border gets flooded. We've had a record number of people who have crossed the border illegally, a record number of people who have crossed the border legally. Uh basically manipulating our asylum laws and of course it's catch and release so they're just allowed into the country and they're taking these menial labor jobs these fast food jobs these restaurant jobs that americans had quit working for because this is one of the narratives of 2021 that american workers were finally starting to recognize their own worth especially restaurant workers that was the number one industry where american workers were quitting and weren't going back they were just staying home And rather than point out that if we don't get a handle on this immigration, then eventually what's going to happen is these restaurants are just going to hire a bunch of foreign workers, which back in the old days, if you remember back in the union busting days, they used to be called scabs. These restaurants are eventually going to hire a bunch of foreign scabs. And rather than the restaurants being able to offer higher wages and better benefits for the workers, the American workers that they lost – they're instead going to be able to pay the same crappy wages to these foreigners that they were paying Americans back in 2018 and 2019. And that's what happened. A lot of these businesses are filling their ranks with foreign workers, and so naturally unemployment is extremely low. The, number, the third point that he points out is if consumers are miserable, why is leisure spending on fire? And on this point I actually kind of agree with him he points out that consumers everywhere when you ask them and pollsters ask them how do you feel about the US economy everyone feels miserable everyone thinks that the country is in a crappy mood that we're headed toward recession but when you ask them about themselves they think that they're doing pretty well you know they're they're going shopping they're loading up their carts at target they're going on vacation this is something that you notice as people have turned away from sports because this is one thing especially with people on the right People have just stopped watching sports. They, they don't sit at home and watch team sports like they used to. The Olympics aren't that popular anymore. Even soccer was more popular 10 years ago than it is today among the general public. So instead of sitting home watching sports, instead of watching TV, a lot of people are going on vacation. Travel has increased. They, even with the, the, uh, the high gas prices, people are still paying them. And the point he makes is that it seems like Americans are kind of, uh, they have the understanding that the, the country is headed down the drain. The economy is headed down the drain, and eventually it's all going to hit the fan, and eventually the country is just going to completely come, um, come unwound, so they might as well enjoy the good times while they can. You know, it's kind of like right before the Great Depression. It was like this is 1927, 1928. They want to get in those the last few vacations before everything goes to pot, and it's causing consumer sentiment. It seems It's making consumerism remain high. The retailers are doing well. But the people are miserable. It's also something we pointed out last week. You remember when we were talking about Top Gun, the reason why Top Gun did so well. The reason it did so well is because people saw that as a movie that the country could unite around and feel good about themselves about. There's really not much in the country today that that Americans can unite around and see that they have in common.
0: That's exactly why my review of Top Gun Maverick for American Greatness was literally titled Top Gun Maverick is the movie America needs right now.
1: Yes, yes. And so – You know, whenever you have a country that's not united, there is no common history. There's no common historical understanding. There's really nothing that unites Americans. I mean, except, I guess, alcohol. You know maybe maybe drinking beer, most Americans like to drink that's yeah. really the only thing that they can that can unite them, I mean that's why right. alcohol consumption is through the roof
0: but you 're right they can 't even unite around like football. We all used to love football in Super Bowls, but now football, thanks to a guy named Colin Kaepernick, has now been heavily politicized, and we can 't even enjoy that anymore like there there really is there's nothing like even when you look at you know celebrities these days, right like I mean celebrities back in the day were guys like you know John Wayne, Humphrey Bogart, you know Elvis. We always talked about the Elvis movie. They were celebrities that everybody could love and just you know not think about politics or anything you all if you were an american you loved these people marilyn monroe these days who are our celebrities it's actors from the marvel movies i guess and you know like i don't know talk show hosts late night comedians who are all just democrat talking point spouting machines at this point like it's there's nothing in this country we can really unite around there's no national heroes anymore there's no national pastime i mean baseball It's nothing anymore. There's just nothing,
1: and that's why you're seeing Americans travel at the same level that Europeans did. I mean, used to Europeans would travel all over the place. Americans were mostly homebodies because travel, domestic travel, has now become a form of escapism. Americans, uh, you know, just going off with family and friends, and uh, you know, pretending like the country isn't going to pot is kind of it's like going to their happy place. But another thing I would point out is that the reason why – one of the reasons why Americans, especially on the right, can't seem to unite around anything is because they don't really have a political voice to unite them around anything. So in other words, they don't have anyone in their corner saying, you know, hey, we can unite around this. This is Americana at its finest. Let's support this. So they're trying to point them in – like there's no sport that the American right champions as its own. I mean I guess UFC would be kind of the closest thing they have. But I remember – like you mentioned um, – like, like I remember years ago, like when strangers, when Americans met, like you go back 20, 25 years, people actually would bond over politics, over the news, like people who – with complete strangers. They didn't know if they were of the same party or not. They would just discuss politics and the news out in the open loud and proud and disagree with each other loud and pr- loudly and proudly. With no consequence, no kind of hushing up, like it wasn't anything. Like the ex-communist countries of Eastern Europe, where everyone talked really quietly in the '90s and early 2000s, because they were so used to uh, to communist oppression. America has now moved into that for, that post-communist mentality, or even the communist mentality, where nobody wants to say anything. It's not because they're afraid the government is going to come down on them. It's because a) it's too depressing to talk about the news and politics with their family and friends who agree with them, and b). It's too divisive to talk about it with complete strangers whom they don't know if they'll blow up or accuse them of being a bigot or racist or go after their job and contact their employer and make up lies about them. So this is one of the reasons why the, you know, we don't really have anything at all in common to unite us, and one of the problems with the Republican Party is they think that economics will unite people. And this is you know it's the this idea that if you just get the economy rolling if you just get the economy humming this is one of my criticisms of Trump during the election of 2020 when people asked him in the debate they they asked him what can you do to unite black people and white people like what can you do to unite the country because everything was divisive in 2020 and he said well if we just get the economy humming back again if we get the once people are making money and they're doing well then everyone will get along and that was true back in the days when we shared a common history, we shared common goals, we shared a common civilization. Yes, when people were doing poorly, they were competing for scarce jobs and scarce resources, and they were at each other's throats. Once the country was doing well, though, then you know there was a lot more harmony. The problem with that theory today is if you give people more money, they're more likely to go into their silos and spend that money on their own pet political causes, their own pet racial causes. And they're just going to disunite even more because now they figure, hey, I've got more money to spend on the political causes that I care about, not I have more money to spend on my family and friends, et cetera. And this is like Georgia, for instance. The election of, you know, you got Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp going to each other's throats, and, you know, basically whites and blacks in Georgia being uh, pitted against each other. Georgia is doing better than just about any state in the country. Georgia is one of the most prosperous states in the country. And this is one thing they were pointing out during that gubernatorial election was that the it's actually the economic prosperity in Georgia that's driving all this divisiveness because people now have more money and more leisure time to focus on things that don't revolve around economics. So the question is how as the Republican Party, uh, you know, I'm not we're not advocating just for the Republican Party, we are the right take. So we're advocating for the right take, even if that take You know, It goes against what the Republican Party's take is, but I guess the question is since the Republican – it's a two-party system. The Republican Party is technically, quote-unquote, on the right. How should the Republican Party respond to this political situation where when people are doing poorly, they become – the country becomes more divided. When they're doing well economically, the country becomes even more divided. I think the answer to that is they need to focus on the social issues that their base cares about, and they need to – implement economic policies that will allow their base to prosper. And this is what Democrats do. Did you hear about Biden's plan to declare um, an environmental emergency today? He's going to issue a slew of executive orders tomorrow, allegedly.
0: Right, yeah, a climate emergency in response to the fact that, once again, you know, there were talks to possibly revive Build Back Better for the 17th time, but Joe Manchin for the 17th time came down and said, sorry, no, I can't support A, raising taxes on the wealthy, and B, I can't support uh, these climber fissions you guys are calling for. So the, at that point, the fact that those rumors, those reports are swirling that Biden's going to do that, to me, that shows that he knows he's never going to get Mansion on his side and build back better as a piece of legislation is dead. And this is basically going to be Biden's equivalent of what Obama did with Docker. Remember, he tried to pass the DREAM Act and failed. It, it couldn't, even with Republican support, you know, the Gang of Eight, it could not pass Congress. So Obama threw a hissy fit and decided, well, I'm just going to sign an executive order then. Biden's going to basically do the same thing here.
1: So yeah, I had a friend call me and I was it sounded a little bit concerned like about this. And the thing is, like the president doesn't really have the constitutional authority like Hitler did. Whenever he declared, remember that was what the way Hitler took power. Is he declared a national emergency when yep. the the uh, what was it? What it was the? parliament building and there the, 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 the reichstag was, fire the reichstag yeah the one the reichstag was, was on fire and everything the american president doesn't have that kind of authority in the constitution to do that but he can declare like a national emergency like uh, during COVID or whatever and the thing is like i told him so all this is is it's just an avenue for biden to simply give money to his donors like redistribute money from wealthy republicans to wealthy democrats that's kind of what the whole green climate agenda is all about You have Republicans who are in oil and gas, and you have Democrats who are in clean energy and green energy, and the idea is you simply redistribute wealth from the wealthy Republican donors to the wealthy Democratic donors because, hey, the donors run this country, and if your big guns have more firepower than the wealthy and the billionaires on the other side, then you're actually going to do better in elections.
0: Green energy really is just a giant racket if you look at it. I mean you go all the way back to Obama with the Solyndra scandal, remember when his his government funded— funneled millions of dollars into this, you know, solar energy company that ended up being a complete failure, you know, as an experimental thing for green energy. Same thing with the Paris Climate Accord. The Paris Climate Accord is all about raising hundreds of billions of dollars, even trillions of dollars, really, from all the member states and putting it all into one big fund. Where does all that money go? Who knows? But at the end of the day, that was about to be the single greatest heist in human history, because all that money was going to go somewhere to a single entity. It's all about making money. It's, for all the projections about how oil, big oil runs the world and big oil is all about making money, the green energy companies are just as bad as the oil companies.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Every bit is bad, and that's why you see billionaires writing $60 million checks to super PACs. That's why you see – the it's not all ideological. A lot of it is ideological, but it, politics is run basically on two it's, – it's two legs of a stool. you got – the economic, you got the social aspect, and you got the economic aspect. Ultimately, what they want to do is dominate the other side socially. Now, in order to dominate the other side socially and implement their view of the good life, their view of utopia or heaven on earth, they have to gain economic dominance. And back when Republicans were the party of the wealthy elite, Democrats simply couldn't fight the economic firepower that Republican donors had. So in order to gain the upper hand socially, they had to control the corporations, they had to control the, uh, the, you know, they had to control Hollywood, the media, all of the, uh, the communications arms, but mostly they had to control the corporations. They had to compete in the billionaire bracket, and that's like that's what, what they're doing today. They're trying to make it so that they have the cards stacked in their favor when it comes to money. And I looked at uh, – there was a map of the uh, election in 2016. Hillary won literally two-thirds if you took like the wealthiest 100 counties in the country. Hillary Clinton literally won two-thirds of it. It's like she has 66 percent of the wealth in the country, and they've become the party of the elite because they've done this very well. They understand that if they want to control the narrative on abortion, if they want to control the narrative on LGBTQIA through Z rights, then they have to control the money. They have to control the power structure, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York. They have to control those uh, the economic engines of America. and. Republicans need to understand that they have a very small window of opportunity when they do gain power, and they need to use that opportunity to redistribute wealth to their people, to their voters. Just as an example there's an op-ed in The Federalist that, uh, by Andy Puzder that really explains a lot of what's wrong with the mentality of the Republican Party and why when it comes to labor, when it comes to immigration. They simply don't have a strategy to combat the, um, the two-pronged approach the Democrats do, which is to give their voters what they want socially and empower their voters economically to be able to implement what they want socially. So this guy in the Federalist, he writes, the decline of the American work ethic will exacerbate the oncoming recession. And this article is every bit like it sounds because you've, you've heard the same trope over and over again. Republicans continually complain about how lazy Americans are. This new generation of Americans is just lazy. They won't go to work. If you point out to especially a business owner or someone who is in is, – is partial to the business community about all the foreign workers who are coming into America taking American jobs, their knee-jerk reaction, most of them is going to – for most business people is going to be, well, Americans won't work. Americans won't go to work. Americans are too lazy. Americans just won't take those jobs. So, hey, if, if they're going to take the jobs, good for them. They need to and just it, pick themselves up by their bootstraps, as it were. Yes, exactly. American workers need to stop. They need to put down the crack cocaine. They need to put down the heroin. Hair, they need, Americans need to put down the crack cocaine. They need to put down the heroin. They need to put down the marijuana. They need to go to work. And this is the same refrain that you hear over and over again. It's like it's our fault that we're dying off and being replaced by foreigners. He writes, the Atlanta Federal Reserve recently projected that second quarter GDP fell by 1.9%. If its model proves correct, the U.S. economy has fallen into a recession with GDP shrinking for two consecutive quarters, as I mentioned earlier with Derek Thompson's article. Whether we are technically in a recession is far less important than the reality of the recession Americans have been experiencing for months. At this point, with ongoing historic inflation, Americans are also likely enduring stagflation. Congressional Democrats are trying to distract from contracting economy and runaway prices by pointing to the supposedly strong labor market. They argue that the country is not in a recession as long as the unemployment rate stays low. On Friday, the Labor Department announced that the economy created 372,000 jobs in June, and the unemployment rate held at 3.6%. Yet the labor market isn't as rosy as the top-line unemployment rate suggests. There are still over 500,000 fewer people working today than before the pandemic despite the V-shaped recovery Biden inherited from President Trump. Yet employers are desperate to hire. There are 11.3 million unfilled jobs nationwide. That's nearly two jobs for every unemployed person. This obviously raises the question, why are fewer people working than was the case pre-pandemic? Well, the answer is equally obvious. Not enough Americans are willing to work. So how does he prove this, this thesis that not enough Americans are willing to work? That's why you have two jobs for every one person who is out of work. The labor force participation rate remains well below its pre-pandemic standard. In fact, were labor participation today the same as when the pandemic began, the unemployment rate would be 5.5%. It's only 3.6% because fewer people are working or actively looking for work. Generous social welfare programs expanded during the COVID-19 pandemic helped explain this labor market paradox. During most of 2021, supplemental federal unemployment benefits and boosted child tax credits distributed monthly paid most entry-level workers more to stay home than return to work. A June 2021 study by economists at the Committee to Unleash Prosperity found that a family of four with two parents out of work earned around $72,000 in unemployment benefits more than the national median household income. So there is not any welfare left from the pandemic, and this is one thing – like those unemployment – those. Those enhanced unemployment benefits, like the extra $600 that the federal government tacked on to what was most of the time very measly unemployment benefits from the state level. Like I know in the state of Alabama, it's like $250 a week if you're laid off and you're out of work. So at least this boosted up to $850 a week. All of that ended at the end of August of last year. So in August 2021, August 31st, 2021, all of that ended September 1st. You were back in the cold with whatever little measly scraps your state was going to offer you if you were unemployed. And it's funny because I've heard Republicans even in 2022 complaining about the federal unemployment benefits. So people are getting paid more to sit home on their butt and then go to work. And that's simply not true. They haven't been paying attention to the news. All that stuff ended mid last year. Okay, so another complaint that he makes is about the, the child tax credit. Now, this is actually something that I think people on the right need to get behind, and they need to make it permanent. So he's talking about a family of four with two parents out of work, earned around $72,000 a year in unemployment benefits. Now, of course, that's the unemployment benefits tacked on with the child tax credit. You take off the unemployment benefits. Of course, that goes down. But with those, I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like $500 per child per month. I think that's fantastic. One of the problems with the current right is we have made a god – out of economic prosperity and GDP, and rather the original definition of conservatism was uh basically a movement of people who were more dedicated to hearth and home than they were anything else it 's about building up strong communities founded by strong families with parents who can take care of children and raise them in a historic patriotic education. you know one of the reasons why. Young people today don't know anything about American history and care even less, and those who do have been brainwashed to hate American history. It's because used to the way Americans became patriots is because they learned at home what their parents had been taught at home, whose grandparents had also been patriots. Because I remember I learned more about American history from my mom than I ever did in school. I learned more at home watching patriotic historic American movies than I ever did in school. And that gave me, sparked an interest in me to learn more and study more about America. And it was the narrative that was passed down because I mean, used to the history, the profession only existed, only came into existence in the late 1800s. Before that, the way people learned history was through oral teaching by their parents. And they were taught, of course, the patriotic narrative from their ancestors. And so, for conservatives, for self-described conservatives to complain about the fact that parents are getting paid to have kids, to take care of those kids, especially with inflation out of control, what is the solution? So this guy doesn't want the – he he's against the child tax credit. So what happens when you take away the child tax credit? Okay, now both parents have to go to work if they want to have a middle-class income. And what happens when both parents go to work? Well, they have to end up paying at least half of one of their salaries to pay for child care. And who are they going to hire to be a babysitter? Well, most likely it's going to be some pink haired weirdo with a couple of studs and her tongue and a couple of nose rings who has been steeped in CRT and is going to then pass that on to their children. Or it's someone who's completely neglectful and probably isn't going to take care of them at all. So you're going to outsource your parenting to a bunch of neurotic millennials who have been brainwashed by, because if you've ever met like actual American babysitters, a lot of them are college grads with master's degrees who simply can't find work. The only thing they know how to do, well, I, w- I wouldn't say that, they do know how to work in their profession, but the only thing that's available for them is being a nanny. And that's just temporary, temporary until they can do something with their gender studies degree. So while they're waiting to do something with that gender studies degree, who do you think they're going to be practicing on if they're babysitting your kids? This is something that is completely antithetical to everything that is conservative or should be conservative. As conservatives, we should want a strong economy in which one breadwinner can make enough money to support at least a family of three. If you have more than three kids, okay, maybe the wife needs to start a home business. I don't know. But that's kind of what we're trying to get back to, where you can have strong families with three to five kids where the father can go to work work a 40-hour work week and support his family. They can buy a house, they can buy two cars, and they can live a good middle-class life in this country. And hey, paying people to have children is a great thing. It worked in Hungary and it can work here, especially considering that Americans are inviting foreigners to come in here faster than we can start popping out Americans through the womb. He writes, this is not a criticism of people genuinely in need of government assistance, and this is the typical conservative trope that, you know, I'm against food stamps, but if people really need it, they should get it. I'm against Medicare. Oh, but if people really need help, they should get it, and what they basically want to do is completely cut down the social safety net to next to nothing so they can force these people to be completely reliant on their employers so their employers can offer rock-bottom wages. He writes, we are a rich nation. We should and we do help those in need, but the able bodied should work for both society's benefit and for their personal benefit, their dignity, and their self-worth. President Clinton talks about how President Clinton and Newt Gingrich affirmed this notion when they imposed work requirements for, for welfare recipients. And so the welfare, obviously the welfare system of the 60s was horrible. It was meant to basically uh, placate blacks. It wasn't really meant to bring the country together or boost um, you know, boost the, the birth rate or anything. So it's, it's comparing apples and oranges. And this is typically what they do. They, they immediately jump back to the 1990s and they're like, you know, as Republicans, we don't stand for this free money that's going out to people. But the way I look at it is we give so much corporate welfare to the green energy industry, even the oil industry, even to farmers, to every basically every industry out there. I think we could spare a little bit of that welfare to give to parents who are actually producing children, the next generation that's going to pay for some of these uh, social security benefits, some of this corporate welfare that were handed out. The major point he made is that you've got two jobs for every one person that's out of work and not looking for work. So, Eric, why do you think these employers, if they've got, let's say, what was the number that he gave on here? It's um. So he said there are 11.3 million unfilled jobs nationwide. That's nearly two jobs for every unemployed person. Eric, what do you think the reason – if if all of these employers have all of these available jobs that they're just desperate to fill, what do you think the reason is that they can't attract any of these millions and millions of people who aren't applying for jobs?
0: Hmm. Could it possibly be because they – the people that you know, you're talking about attracting that should be attracting you know, American citizens who want to work can't compete with the lower wages that will be paid to the roughly 11 million illegals who are here currently
1: say that that is correct but let's say that i'm a business owner and i've got 50 open i've got 50 job openings i need i need to fill those jobs let's say uh, well you could just basically say you're an airline because you know how the what's going on with the airlines like people can't get flights anywhere all their half their flights are being canceled they're having to spend three nights a week in the airport and that is because
0: and that's because of a shortage by the way make no mistake that actually happened to me side note here just on that subject that happened to me on my flight back from california my original flight was delayed three times to the point that i was was going to miss my original connection flight in dallas so then american airlines to their credit did ultimately help me reschedule another flight to go to phoenix and then phoenix to uh washington dc but they ultimately the excuse they gave was like a an email saying like oh extreme weather conditions And i'm looking outside it is as clear as can be out of the city i was flying out of i was flying out of fresno california there's no way that weather was the reason for that plane being delayed that's the excuse they're throwing out there because yeah they have a shortage of pilots they have a shortage of air traffic controllers they have a shortage of flight attendants that is the real reason make no mistake it's a human
1: reason so let's say that i'm a business 50 job openings that need to be filled yesterday and a bunch of Americans out there who are sitting on the street corners panhandling, who some of whom have college degrees. I've got a lot of Americans who are just collecting unemployment, they're collecting disability, they're working fast food off on, and they're being driven into drugs. Why would I try to Americans when I know that the policy of the Democratic Party is to bring in as many poor laborers who are chomping at the bits to get in this country as fast as they can? I also know that the Chamber of Commerce has its tentacles in the Republican Party, and they're not gonna let any Republican politician rock the top. He's gonna demand an American for, an america first immigration policy that will curb immigration and bring us down to a net zero or close to it legal immigration. So as a business owner, I have no incentive. There is a businesses are run, they're driven by incentives. Businessmen are not driven by incentives. As a businessman, I have no incentive whatsoever to try to recruit American workers when I know that if I can hold out long enough I'm going to get all of the foreign workers that I need. And a good example of this, a good historic example, is the factories in the North, especially in the Northeast. Ellis Island blew up in the early 1900s because there were plenty, plentiful jobs in the Northeast for these immigrants to take. Meanwhile, there was actually an oversupply of laborers in the South at this time. As you started to have farms mechanized at the South, Really, southern farmers, large plantation owners, didn't really need that many sharecroppers. They didn't really need that many farm workers. So when Americans finally got fed up with all of the foreign immigration and they passed the 1924 Immigration Act, you still had all those factory jobs. But the immigration from Ellis Island dried up. So where were these factory owners going to get workers? They couldn't get them from Europe anymore because the Europeans weren't coming. They got them from the south. They actually sent recruiters down the plantations in the south and recruited sharecroppers to come up north. They then got those sharecroppers to spread it to their relatives by word of mouth that they could make more money in northern factories than they could as southern sharecroppers. And as a result, you had millions and millions of blacks from the south who left the farms and moved to the north to work, had a much better living, and made much higher wages than they ever could in the south. Now, why couldn't have they done that in 1904 instead of 1924? Well, because they couldn't compete with all the foreign labor coming in, and most of them had no idea that those jobs even existed because the capitalists in the Northeast had no incentive to try to tap into the unused American workforce as long as they had ready-made workers arriving on Ellis Island. And it's the exact same way today. As long as you keep that spigot turned on, American employers have absolutely no incentive to train Americans to do these jobs. You know, If you shut off the immigration tomorrow, it would be a difficult adjustment because most of these Americans who aren't even looking for work, if they ever had any skills to begin with, they've lost them because they haven't been using them. It would take a while for these companies to train these people to do the job well. It would take these companies – and the guy, this guy who wrote this article, he's not wrong. The work ethic actually has declined in America, but it's not the people's fault. It's the business's fault. If you have an individual who… Doesn't have any incentive to get up early, to show up to work on time, to work hard. He's not being, you know, he's not pay, making but ten dollars an hour. He's not going to become a good worker. If you give him the monetary incentive to do that, then he will become a good worker. But he's not going to receive that monetary incentive as long as his businesses have uh, just a complete, uh, unfettered supply of foreign labor that's pouring into the country. And I just want to end on this one article. This is from the New York Post, another op-ed from a pro-republican publication. This is by Adam Coleman, and this was aptly written on July 4th. He writes – "There's the title of it is There's No Greater Dream Than the American Dream, and Anyone Can Attain It because what other American topic would a Republican write about on July 4th? He's not going to write about defeating the British. He's not going to write about mama and apple pie. He's not going to write about hearth and home. He's going to write about economics. Of course he's going to write about the American dream, which in the – you know the the corporate the corporatist GOP definition revolves around economic prosperity, and I'm not going to go through this article. All this article we'll link in the show notes. But he basically, he's basically saying that it's like this uh, this conversation that he had with his kid. It's kind of like you know, have these people do like my eight year old son asked me. Me, Daddy, why is such and such like this? And I explained to him, Well, son, the reason why we don't have gun control in America is yada yada yada. And so basically it's well, this uh, supposed conversation he had with his son my, about the my, American My dream.
0: Trans my transgender three-year-old asked me, Mommy, why is Donald Trump literally Hitler? You know, these stories that absolutely never happen.
1: Yes, yes. So his son, uh <clears throat> we'll just assume that it's true. His son's asking him, What is the American drink? Okay, so I don't remember when I was little ever asking my dad, oh, Daddy, what, what is the American dream? Can anyone achieve the American dream regardless of their right? This kid allegedly asked? But anyway, he explains the American dream as something that anyone can achieve through hard work. It's something that anyone can achieve by he, – he writes, he writes, to achieve the American dream, you must make yourself as valuable as possible by building your skill sets and learning from people who are more intelligent and successful than yourself while gaining experience along the way. Hmm, kind of sounds like what people expect when they go to college, does it not? Yeah. I mean, after all, when you go to college, you're trying to make yourself as valuable as possible by building and learning from people who are a lot more intelligent and successful than yourself while gaining experience along the way. The problem is most American millennials were led to believe that that's what college was going to do for them. So they go to college for four years. They live on three hours of sleep and caffeine and they learn from these professors who are a lot smarter than them. They learn about world history. They learn about classic literature. They learn about foreign languages. They learn about Marxist history, about gender studies and gender dysphoria, assuming that by learning from people who are smarter than them, by making straight A's, they're building their skill sets, and there's going to be a job waiting for them at the end of this tunnel. So you can't then turn around and blame them for not being equipped to achieve the American Dream, and then castigating them as lazy when they fail to do so, when the system itself led them to it led them down this path. So, yes, to achieve the American Dream, it's true that you have to be as valuable as possible and build your skill set and work hard. The problem with this rose-colored glasses way of looking at the American dream is that it assumes that there's nothing baked into the American system itself that puts Americans at a disadvantage that makes it impossible for hardworking, dedicated people to achieve the American dream. And the number one reason why it's next to impossible for people who don't come from wealth or the upper middle class to achieve the American dream today is immigration. The number one way that people used to save money to start businesses to get ahead or to climb their way up the corporate ladder or the factory ladder was because if they worked hard, they showed up to work on time, and they really put their heart and soul into their job, they would be rewarded. Today, you're not going to be rewarded most of the time because you'll be replaced and it's the same way when it comes. It doesn't matter if it's blue collar work or if it's white collar work. If it's blue collar work, you're being replaced by Central Americans. If it's white collar work, you're being replaced by Indians and Pakistanis. So, in order to actually restore the American dream and to create the country that this guy and other conservatives and other Republicans think that is still possible today, there's two things. There's a lot of things for me to do. Number one, you've got to you've got to curb immigration, and that means that business owners and the business community. Have to get by on a lot less, and we talked about this. Remember when we talked about Subway about how Subway is having to close a lot of their restaurants, and the reason was because they had built their empire, their Subway empire, on a on a business model that expected cheap labor. So if you're expecting cheap labor, um, yeah, you're not going to make as much money. Let's let's bring it back to the antebellum South. If you're a plantation owner and you're expecting to slavery to go on forever, you're just going to keep buying land and buying land and planting cotton, buying land and planting cotton. Well, when that system ends, now all of a sudden you've got to pay people wages. You've now got to give them a part of the crop. You've now got to, your labor cost is going to go up. And now you realize you've overextended yourself. So you're going to have to sell a lot of land off. And you're going to have to sell off a lot of that land to a lot of the former workers. It's the same way in the capitalist system. If you're expecting a constant slew, a constant flow of cheap slave labor to come in and make your sandwiches and treat your customers. Then your empire expanding, building businesses, buying new property. And when that contracts, you're going to end up you know, being angry at the American system for allowing Americans to sit at home and collect unemployment for not bringing in immigrants fast enough. So, in order to actually build back the American dream, American business owners and this community are going to have to face a contraction because they've built their entire empire on the backs of immigrant labor. And the second thing that's going to have to happen in order for that American dream to be built back up is American workers are actually going to have to have a political voice. And the Democrats, obviously, as the party of elites, aren't going to give them that voice. So the only other question is, what would it take for the Republican Party to actually give them a voice? And if if you notice, and I'm just going to end on this, the, the Republican Party, since Trump left office, has done everything it possibly can to distance itself away from tariffs, to distance itself away from curbs on legal immigration, and to distance itself away from convincing workers that that corporations are the problem. And it's done everything it can to convince – this goes from Fox News all the way down to talk show hosts convincing even workers themselves that the reason why the economy is struggling is because people are just lazy. They're just lazy. They just want to sit home and collect welfare. They don't want to go to work, and as long as they can continue to create this myth that Americans are lazy, that's why immigrants are taking their jobs. Americans are lazy. That's why we've got inflation. Americans are lazy. That's why you know, the, the economy isn't booming. As long as they can continue to spread that myth, then there's never going to be any political process, progress on the right in actually consolidating economic power, which would open the door for um, changing the country socially.
0: And like you said, at the end of the day, Jacob, the the biggest problem with all of this is the fact that this is something that is shared by both parties. You have Democrats who want to bring the illegals in because they want all the extra votes. And you have Republicans, Chamber of Commerce type GDP Republicans who want to bring illegals in so that they can, you know, boost the economy or whatever. Because, you know, it doesn't matter who's in those jobs as long as those jobs are filled, you know. And if they'll work for cheaper wages, then those employers are saving money and then we're all happy. Like at the end of the day, it is the uniparty as it has been called. And this is a bipartisan problem and needs to be fundamentally dismantled from the inside out. And the way, the best way to start that is to at least try to get one of those parties to institutionally turn on the subject of mass migration. And that was happening with the Republican Party. As you said, it started when Trump came along, and now he's out of office. They're going to turn around and pretend that the Trump years never happened. They voted for the gun control bill, they voted for Biden's infrastructure bill. They're getting, they're basically getting ready to cave completely on immigration. They want to just go back to the way things were where they could pretend to be enemies in public and then turn around and privately agree with each other behind closed doors. So if we're going to have any hope of fixing this issue, you've got to at least turn one party completely against that stance of letting as many illegals in as possible for economic reasons or whatever and make them the anti-immigration party. Make them the party of restrictionism, of immigration hawkishness. And Donald Trump was the only one who – came even close to getting that done. Again, the party mostly resisted him, but he still did more to shift public opinion on immigration than anybody in the last 50 years, maybe. I mean, when was the last time immigration was a major political issue ever compared to things like taxes or wars and whatnot? So hopefully we can see the change in these years' midterms, you know, with, again, lots of pro-Trump, MAGA Republicans, anti-immigration people running for office, J.D. Vance and uh, Blake Masters and others. And then certainly if Trump does run again, which I think he will in 24 and manages to win the presidency a second time, we can get back to finishing what he started. You know, build the wall, all that good stuff and keep them out. You know, lock the door to America because we are full and we need to focus on taking care of our people first. And that starts by giving American jobs to Americans. And that is all the time we have left here on this episode of The Right Take, episode number 70. Once again, thank you guys so much for sticking with us through these milestones we've been through so far. We are closing in on a huge milestone with our 100th episode. It'll be here before you guys even know it. But as always, be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media websites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to support the show, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.